0: Hello and welcome to Dig It. I'm Peter Brown and hosting the show with me today is Chris Day.
1: Hi Chris. Hi Peter. In this episode of Dig It we speak to Val Bourne, a lifelong gardener and award-winning garden writer whose name will be familiar to readers of The Telegraph, Country Life, Gardens Illustrated, Amateur Gardening and Saga Magazine amongst others. As well as writing and lecturing, Val is an, or, uh, an organic, hands-on gardener and, by her own admission, a committed plantaholic. Val, a very warm welcome to Dig It. And uh, as, as I mentioned to Peter before repairing this chat, when I was editing Garden Ideas magazine, you were you were my very first regular colonist in the in the gardening magazine covering multi layers of of wildlife uh, gardening. So it's really nice to have a, a proper chat. <laughs> well
2: that was a, quite a long time ago, Chris.
1: I know, I've, I've, it's tw- twenty four years ago. Scarily, I was looking. Yeah, yeah that's a long time. But uh, so, uh, yeah. so perhaps can we just sort of paint a picture? Where where did your uh, wonderful affair and hook to the wonderful world of plants and nature begin is a starting point well, well,
2: well it well it began for all the wrong reasons really because i'm a twin uh-huh. and um i have this um, habit of waking up very early and um i'm very to- i was very talkative and i still do chat a lot and um i used to wake up when i was a small child and we lived with my grandmother um, my my mother and father both worked, which was very unusual because I grew up in the 1950s okay. in a suburban London. Mm-hmm. So my grandmother would take me out of the cot and uh, she'd take me in the garden because uh, otherwise I'd wake everybody else up. And I would a twin and I shared a room with my brother. And uh, so she'd whip me out as soon as she heard me make any noise. At about five o'clock on a summer's morning i was whipped out of the cot and straight into the garden and um she was most um interesting person because she was born in 1881 mm-hmm. and she was a bit like queenie in lark rise to candleford in that there was a story about every plant so she told me when i was quite small about alchemilla being named after alchemists and alchemists were sort of people who turned ordinary metal into gold so she sort of extended the plants but she also gave me lots of little jobs to do and i was very small probably only about three when i i started trying to pick caterpillars off cabbages and things like that Uh, and that's really why i'm an organic gardener and why i've always been a gardener because i grew up with it yes
1: so, I mean, thinking about it, I mean, they're, they're amazing to have those sort of memories from, su- you know, such an early age. That's, that's quite amazing. So can you, you know, sort of take your mind back to your, your very earliest recollections uh, of, 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 of your garden at that time or, or your, your parents' garden?
2: Well, it, um, it was quite an ordinary garden. It was the big for victory era. And we had a neighbour next door. Um, it was quite mm-hmm. peculiar because though it was a row of five houses mm-hmm. and they were terraced. And um, there were three sets of twins within the five houses. And there used to be lots of jokes about (laughs) milkmen. I recall. Uh, And and, uh, Mrs. Dickinson next door had chickens, which a lot of people kept. Because I was born in 1950. I'm incredibly ancient. And um, it was very much a sort of, um, you know, the air raid shelters were still in place and people were growing vegetables. But my er very, very earliest memory is actually watching a bee on an aquilegia. And um, I watched the tongue uh, unfurling. It must have been a long-tailed bee because the nectar in aquilegias is in those long spurs. Mm -hmm. And you see, my grandmother told me when I was very, very small, that Aquilegia was named after Aquila for eagle because she'd been a very keen gardener. So, um, you know, it's sort of Mm. insects and plants have always been connected, and that is one of my very earliest memories. And the other one is uh, being given a bucket of salt water, and it was a tin bucket, and you have to put the caterpillars in. And I didn't put them in. I I put them in my hands <laughs> and carried them up at the back alley and put them outside someone else's garden because I didn't want to put them in the salty water. Excellent. So those are my, really my two earliest memories. Well, thank you for
0: sharing those. But equally, I, I knew about putting slugs and salt together and not being very nice for slugs, but I've never thought of um, caterpillars and salt. So that's a nice little organic method
2: put them in water and uh horrible thought
1: yeah yeah Yeah. Mm. and um just thinking back now, Val, when I first met you, you were living in the beautiful village of Hock Norton, literally just down the road from the oh, Goldstone. Yeah. Yes. The
2: village of Deer. And, it, I, and it, I, wish I, was still, I wish I was still living there, I can tell you that. It's a
0: <laughs> wonderful brewery. I, oh, I, yeah. I had the pleasure of going round it last year really? when I was going camping down that way. Mm? We stopped in to get some supplies of for course, our camping. And, why you do. Yeah, it's <laughs> a wonderful building, isn't it? I, I didn't see well, the village.
2: It's a lovely, It's a lovely, friendly big village and people don't move out. So, well, I've been left for 18 years now, and I go back and I still see the same people. But the reason I say I'd rather like to be there is because that garden was in the middle of Hook Norton, Mm -hmm. and it was pre-draining, and um, Hook Norton's actually the rain shadow, so we never got too much rain there. And now I'm stuck in a village called Cold Aston, high in the Cotswolds, which seems to... Get the worst of the weather all the time. So
0: you <laughs> get all the oh. rain that w- might have felt fallen on Hook Norton, yes.
2: <laughs>
0: but yeah, <laughs> yeah. it gets so to you like first. To,
2: I quite like to
1: go back, yeah. so, so I was going to say that what yeah, obviously we when I was at the, the, the magazine, we, we obviously had some lovely photographs of your your garden, which we used in the uh, in, in your articles. But what's your fondest memories then? Of it was home home field was that the
2: name of your your property. Yes, it was Homefield. I mean, I I love the garden, Mm. but, um, you know, I've been there for 18 years and, um, you know, I I was living with Joe at the time, who's now my husband, and we just wanted to get a house together that we both owned. That was basically it. Yes. But I do wish in many ways I hadn't moved because that was such a lovely setting, that uh, garden. No, it's mm.
0: Can you give us a sort of description of what style of garden it was for, the, for our listeners who well, possibly it, don't know? It,
2: because it was free draining, it was on ironstone. Yep. And we didn't get masses of rain. And the ironstone used to absorb the heat from the ground okay. and it used to radiate the heat upwards. So it was a very warm, sheltered garden because Hook Norton itself is in a sort of, um, almost like a bowl between the hills. Uh, And it was actually very famous for cherry growing in times past, because it was such a, 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 it had so much heat radiating up up from the ground. It was very good for cherry growing. So I could grow all sorts of manner of things in the garden. Um, uh, Silvery foxgloves like Digitalis haywoodii. Um, all sorts of silver leaf plants. I grew a lot of dioramas, all um, mm. agapanthus. There were lots of things I grew there that I can't grow here. And so I, It was a very soft, feminine garden. That sounds
1: mm. very the, the, the photographs were always amazing. And uh, I believe it, it was this, this particular garden then which inspired you to, to write write a book about your, your
2: experiences. Well, um, what, what actually inspired me, funnily enough, was a radio program called Dig It. Oh. oh, that's an amazing coincidence, isn't it? Oh, that is a coincidence. But I used to do, uh, when I first started writing in 95, I landed a spot on this radio program for Thames Valley called Did It. Okay. And um, I was uh, about 45 at the time, and I'd had all these years of organic gardening because I'd worked in vegetable research where we used a lot of chemicals. So I made up my mind I wasn't going to ever touch, put anything on my garden at all. Mm-hmm. So I I went off to do this radio program and uh, I'd always grown fruit and vegetables and I've still got an allotment here. We've both got an allotment. Joe and I have got allotments. And um, I went to this radio program and it was the sort of thing where people phone you up okay. and they say, I've got black spot on my roses, I've got sooty mould on my laburnum, and you give them an answer. Mm -hmm. But, of course, um, I was on with another chap. There were three of us, actually, uh, three other people doing it, so it was like a rotor. and I got the second dibs of the questions, probably because I was new, but perhaps because I was a woman. And um, they would say the same thing every week. They would say, buy um, a fungicide, go down and buy this, you know, with this. It was all chemical, chemically related. Mm -hmm. And then I would give the organic answer. And so the black spot on roses, I would say, well, you know, perhaps it's a bad variety. Um, Perhaps the rose needs feeding. It was a completely... And I came out of that program every week feeling totally out of kilter with the rest of the gardening world because I hadn't ever gone down that route. And... Because the long story is short, after about six weeks, they asked me to go. <laughs> <Because> <laughs> Gosh. Nobody. His actual words were, you have a wonderful radio voice, but nobody wants organic answers.
3: Gosh. Wow. I, oh, I, different I, I times.
2: To you, and I thought, well, I'm mm. going to write a book about my garden because mm. I've been gardening home, I moved there in 88, so I've been there about 13 years, Mm -hmm. and I wasn't having any of the problems that people reported. And I thought, I'm going to write a book about my garden. And Mm -hmm. I had a huge problem with that book because I had no idea, not any idea at all, why the garden was trouble-free. I just didn't know why I didn't get black spot on my roses I couldn't grow many roses at Hoognawns. That's not a great thing. But I was growing things that grew well in those conditions. So I started trying to think about how to write this book. So I I, I spent probably four or five years just looking at the garden and trying to weigh up why I didn't have loads of aphids. So that was basically it.
0: Mm, Because in your book, there's a lovely story about
2: aphids. Uh, Is that the living jigsaw one or the... The yeah. I was actually talking about The Natural Gardener, which I wrote about the garden in Hook Norton. But Ah. when I came to write The Living Jigsaw, we'd moved here and it was completely empty, the garden. But the shed was full of all sorts of chemicals like DDT and all sorts of Ben and goodness only knows what. It had been very heavily chemically treated. So Mm. it was a chance to sort of um, start again. and. I studied the garden in Hook Norton and I realised I realised what I needed to do basically which was to have great diversity and to build up insect life and and that's why I wrote The Living Jigsaw, so if we'd moved here I probably would never have written it Interesting,
1: yes
0: yeah, There's it, a lovely story about ants and honeydew Yes I, I, I read that story, I was like I, I'd never I'd never knew ants protected little uh,
2: well, aphids, aphids.
0: aphids and things.
2: I went on a journey when I came out of that radio programme and I went straight to ladybirds because I could actually recognise them and I started looking at ladybirds. And, um, I, you know, they lived in different parts of the garden, different species, and that led me to believe that having lots of plants is a really good thing. But then um, I came out one day and, and two ladybirds were mating. And it was when I was in Hook Norton, so it would have been probably um, the late 90s. And at that time, I had a film camera, a Pentax. Okay. And um, they, they looked so wonderful. that It was April, and they were on the leaves of Gibson Scarlet. And I thought, I've got to take that picture. So I got my tripod out, and it was in the days of Velvia film, which was quite expensive. Mm-hmm. And um, I had four rolls of it. And I set up the tripod, and every time I pressed it, um, it made a noise, and the ladybird started moving. Now, so oh. if I tell you that I took four rolls of film, which I think is under 44 pictures, mm. and only four of them were in focus. Oh, no! Oh, god! You can see, <laughs> see that was a very expensive photo.
3: Labor of uh, love. And, then
2: I saw it, and that led me to look for ladybird eggs. So
3: right.
2: when I first started you know, in the 1990s, looking for all these things. Um, I didn't really know that much about the natural world. But there are some really good books, you know, that would help people. Mm -hmm. Um, Jennifer Owen, um, who studied a garden in Leicestershire for 30 years by trapping insects. Um, She did a book with the RHS called Wildlife in the Garden, I think it is. Mm -hmm. Um, She did that book. And um, it's, it's a really interesting book. There are lots of there are lots of, um, She's probably she was probably the pioneer because she didn't use any chemicals. And, you know, she was in suburban Leicestershire uh, and she found all this insect life. And that was just what happened to me. When I started actually looking um, for things like ladybird eggs, ladybird larva, you know, I really started getting my eye in and just going out there and watching butterflies and really enjoying all the movement and in the mid-1990s there was lots of insect life and sadly there isn't now so it was a bit of an eye-opener really
0: yeah I I can remember the first time I saw a ladybird pupa crawling around on my run of beans and I was like is that a caterpillar and took a photo of it and with my digital camera so I didn't have any film to waste (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and uh, took it in to show my mother and she's like yeah it's just a ladybird pupa But, but but until you've seen one. You think, oh, is it a caterpillar? Is it, it is amazing wildlife like that, it's, isn't
1: it? Do you think with with ladybirds though, it is a bit of a beauty in the beast, isn't it? Because the the, the larvae is quite uh, well. It doesn't look particularly friendly, shall we say? Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. Um, Val, can we just sort of rewind a little bit to 2005? That's when you moved into your. Your new garden at Spring Cottage, where you're now. Well, um... oh,
2: I, um, yes. uh. um, I think garden is a bit of an exaggeration. It was a sort of a muddy patch, really. Oh, okay. there was nothing. There was nothing in the garden at all. Really? Oh. Apart from one cottage garden peony, some mm-hmm. Alcamilla, and there was a white beam in the corner of the garden, which is still there, and um, there was nothing else at all. Okay. Apart from a lot of old daffodils, but when we moved in... We moved in at this time of year, actually, almost, uh, you know, the beginning of December, it actually was. Mm. So, you know, there was nothing up. We didn't know about the old daffodils until the spring. But, you know, it was completely bare. There was nothing in here at all, because the man who'd had it previously um, had sort of run it as an allotment and grown vegetables before he became too ill to do it. Mm. And uh,
1: was it was it really? Obviously, you indicated earlier on it wasn't particularly plain sailing to to grow the plants you want to grow. But uh, how has it moved on in those uh, uh, well, nearly nearly sort of twenty years?
2: Well, it wasn't really plain sailing because I imagined having moved nineteen miles further west Mm -hmm. and a sort of similar latitude that this garden. It's going to be very similar to the one at Hook Norton, and I was in for a terrible shock. Right. We're on the spring line. We've got very deep soil, mm-hmm. but it doesn't hold nutrients very well. There's no clay content. Okay. So it's quite free draining, which is good news. Um, but um, the thing about Cold Aston, which is a village, you know, fairly near still on the world where the wind blows cold, mm-hmm. I think Cold Aston is is even colder than stow so we wrestle with the weather here mm. we get the full extent of the wind because we face south and we overlook fields for about four or five well certainly two or three miles so, so the wind comes rushing across and it's not e- as easy to grow things here as it was in hook norton i can't grow zinnias here there's mm. lots of things i can't grow here mm. that i grew uh in hook norton because it's it's just too chilly so I think it was a, a very much an experimental, um, and, and the very first thing I did is I came, um, having put it in my contract, by the way, when I left it, well, and I arranged to bring my hellebores and snowdrops, because I'd spent many years collecting hellebores, mm-hmm. and I didn't want to just leave them there. So I, I dug them up, and I put them down the bottom end of the garden, and you know, they flowered in the following spring, really, really well. You can move hellebores and they won't blink.
3: Gosh.
2: You know, they, mm. if you move them at the back end of autumn, that, that sort of time, they will just transfer. Um, but um, when they flowered, they looked awful, um, because there, there was nothing to give them any scale. There were no trees or anything. It was just like a sort of gaudy carpet, a very colourful bedding. Mm. And that was the first time in my 55 years, I realized how important trees and shrubs were, not only for draining the soil and protecting the plants, but just giving them that scale. I remember I planted my first um, tree, which was a flowering cherry, and it was a small parasol. And I put it in and immediately, it gave these ground-hugging woodlanders context. Mm. So uh, I've spent a long time um, planting shade here because we face south. I've got 14 witch hazels in the woodland patch. I've got a lot of Daphne Ballures. Okay. I've got Winter Sweet. Um, I've got uh, Winter honeysuckle, And the whole idea was to create this shade and um, cut down the effects of the wind mm-hmm. so that I could grow my, my passionate things I'm passionate about it's too wet down there for snowdrops but I've got trilliums and hardy ferns down there Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. I needed to create that all that sort of shelter belt in that south easterly corner before I could even think about growing putting them down there I think,
1: Val, uh, you're giving some really good advice there. That's most important, isn't it? We always say with the new you know, people going to new builds, especially put in the long-term plants, put the, the hedges and the, the trees and the shrubs, but sometimes, yeah, it, which comes first, the cart or the horse, isn't it?
2: It's one of those sort of situations well, where... Well, no, yeah. you have to put... I had to put that structure in mm. around yeah. the things I'd yeah. already planted in that yeah. bed. Um and actually, the hellebores don't do that well down there because it's a sloping garden and it slopes down to the spring and it lays a little wet down there. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't grow hellebores here, anything like as well as we did in, in Hook Norton. And I think it's probably climate change as well because they're getting hotter, drier summers, which they don't like. But um, I spent a long time um, putting in, um, um, there are three apple trees and they were six when I put them in. And, you know, now they feed us, you know, keep us in apples in good years, right the way through. So I spent a lot of time um, putting in um, plants, um, the two pear trees, which don't do well here, and, and, and various shrubs like Philadelphia that so grow a lot of roses. So I spent a lot of time shoveling plants in, really.
0: And where did you get your, or where do you draw your inspiration from for the layout of the garden? Obviously, as you've explained, different plots have different benefits and sort of weaknesses and things. Well,
2: well, the plants tell me where to go, really, because when you we face south, so the area close to the house gets quite hot and dry. Okay, and um, that um, it's it's good deep soil um it is part of it is spring fed um we get quite a lot of rain so um i always wanted to grow lactiflora peonies and roses um but i couldn't grow them at hook norton because the soil was wrong so when we came here i started to grow put roses in there because i noticed that they were growing well in other parts of the village and when you move to an area that's a really good thing to do Go and have a nose over the garden gates and see what you see. You'll spot things again and again in the same gardens, you know, that are growing well. So I realised that roses will grow well here. And um, so I started to make rose and peony borders there. And that, that's really all summer. Uh, uh, those are summer borders. So it starts with peonies, goes on to roses, goes on to phloxes, border phloxes. And then that's extended until about September. Um, by things like cosmos and penstemons and things like that the That's lower right. part of the garden is the woodland garden with all the woodlanders and the shrubs spring flowering shrubs in and then i've got an autumn border on the sort of southwesterly edge so by segregating gardens like that into different seasonal areas it, it looks much better you don't end up with a peony Fading in August next to an aster, which is in full flow, but it makes garden maintenance easier as well because you can go in and work on a whole area and either cut it down or weed it or get on top of it all at the same time.
1: Val, when I was going to say when I was reading your your uh, your book, The Living Jigsaw, and you do feature an awful lot of roses in in the book, so I I, I gather I assume they are a bit of a passion of yours.
2: Well. They are a passion of mine, but also I'm a crusader when it comes to using chemicals. And I wanted to prove to people that as an organic gardener, you can grow roses and you don't need to worry about black spot if you choose your roses wisely. And I was very fortunate when I came here that I was given by the British Rose Association, Barb. I was given the Rose of the Year in 2006 which was Champagne Moment, mm-hmm. raised by Cordes, the German rose breeders, which is a Florabunda. Well, I didn't set out to grow that rose, but when you've got an empty garden, you're looking for plants all the time. And if somebody says, would you like a free rose, you say yes. <laughs>
3: yeah. well,
2: that's a, a tremendous rose. Mm-hmm. And when I looked into why it was a tremendous rose, and realized that Cordes had stopped in their rose fields, uh, probably 20 or 30 years ago, in order to breed healthy roses, it set me on a path to find others. And some Mm -hmm. of the roses I grow never get black spot. Mm -hmm. And um, I grow Wild Eve, which is a a, um, Dale Austin rose, which is absolutely brilliant. Um, Lots and lots of flower. It's pink. It's not too big, quite a wide rose. Um, So I have to use like a a big semi-circular state around it to hold the branches together because we're windy here. But that with the champagne moment is absolutely superb. And and so I've gone on adding roses and I'm quite ruthless. If they get black spot for two years running, I'm afraid I'd dig them up because I can't spray. So I don't use any slug bait, any insects. I use nothing in my garden at all. And being a plantaholic, I'm always acquiring plants. I never go past Buckingham Garden Centre without calling in. <laughs> That's good to I hear. always have a rummage, and I come out with a plant. Yeah. So I'm, I'm acquiring plants wherever I go, and that means that my planting style is very dense. And mm. I used to do that because I love plants, and I was always shoving them in. Mm. But actually it works very well in an organic garden mm. because you're creating that leafy canopy and it no space no soil is exposed off after, after about april may june that sort of time so you're locking the carbon in and you're also encouraging all these things at soil level particularly ground beetles and ground beetles are very good predators of slugs and i think that's one of the reasons i don't have trouble with slugs yeah, it's all about
1: yeah sort of balance isn't it you, you're doing these things yeah um i just say um, val on the um yeah, you do have a wonderful understanding of uh, all aspects of wildlife in your book, the, the Living Jigsaw. Um, but uh, in, and, and also in your fortnight, the column in Amateur Gardening Magazine. Um, how do you glean all this information? Are you are you self taught? I mean, you made a reference to the the book earlier on, but uh, do you do the necessary research or
2: you know? Is well, the thing is, I, I did, and I, when I started looking at uh, insects, I would buy books. So I bought a book on beetles and I'd buy a book on hoverflies. But entomologists, all they seem interested in doing is splitting things into species and identifying them. You ask an entomologist, or you, if you asked an entomologist 20 or 30 years ago, what does an earwig do? They couldn't actually tell you.
0: But they could tell you how many legs it's got.
2: <laughs> it's, first-hand, <laughs> yes. it's first-hand observation. And oh. I'll give you an example of that. When I was at Hook Norton, I spent no end of time on my hands and knees looking at my plants, looking for ladybird uh, larvae and pupae and things like that, and I discovered that all the ladybird um all the ladybirds seem to like to pupate on silver leafed foliage. So if I went to a sage or a belota or some other silvery leaf plant, an artemisia I would find ladybird larvae, And the strange thing is, I also found them on the aluminium struts of my greenhouse. Mm. And I thought, well, this is really interesting. (laughs) So I went round and I said to Andrew Holstead, who's a lovely chap, and he was the RHS entomologist at the time, I believe that uh, ladybirds like to pupate on silver foliage. And he said, no, that's not true. And I said, why isn't it true? He said because you can actually see them better on silver foliage. If you keep looking, you'll find just as many on um, green leaves. So because I'm a bit of a nerd, I spent another couple of years crawling around my garden, looking at green foliage. And I can tell you (laughs) that ladybirds do like to pupate on silver foliage. Mm. You get far more on silver foliage. So a lot of it, a lot of the knowledge I've accrued, um, Obviously not all of it, because Mm. I do look things up and I find things out. And there are wonderful websites now, like the British Trust for Ornithology and Bug Life and all those sites. I do use them, but a lot of the things start off actually in my garden with me looking at things and wondering about them and watching them. Um, And can I ask... That's just me
0: can i just ask have you noticed obviously when you first moved into the house you're in at the moment you're saying that it was a bit barren and not very plant friendly shall we say you've obviously planted it all up now and you've treated it to a life of organic sort of gardening have you noticed that the higher order predators as in the bird things that are the the bigger part of wildlife has moved into the garden as well as all the tiny little bugs and beetles and things
2: It is a slightly difficult question to answer because we definitely get more bird life. We stopped feeding our birds in the winter, which sounds cool, but we were finding that we were getting a lot of blue tits. And nesting sites are in very short supply. And the blue tits um, were taking a lot of nesting sites from other birds. So we have got um, much more um, insect life and bird life. Uh, and we sort of tweak it as we go. So when we first hit, were here, um, we got blackfly on the run of beans and nothing ate them because there was nothing in this garden. But as we've bought more shrubs and trees and planting in, we've definitely got more insect life. Mm-hmm. But there are far fewer insects than there were in the 1990s. When I was teaching uh, in the first years of the 1990s, I had to drive towards Stratford-upon-Avon um, which is about 20 miles away from Huggie. And um, twice a week, I'd have to leave early, get up early, and, and spend time cleaning my windscreen because I had so many insects on it. Well, you don't get that out. And I've got a video that was taken in the garden in 1996, and it's full of flecks of movement behind me the person is actually photographing the garden but you can't miss all the little insects buzzing about in the background because that is catching the movement of them and that's really really declined and since we've been here we've lost a lot of species so we used to have missile in the holly tree at the back where they've gone we used to have barn owls down in the copse which is a field away but then new people moved in and they started clearing it so they went We just spotted flycatchers in the summer. They went two years ago. So we're sort of, you know, we're missing species that we used to get in the garden. Um, So we, you know, on one level it works, on another level it's going down. And um, people still are still indoctrinated into thinking that they need to use pesticides and herbicides. And they certainly don't understand what pesticides do? Mm. Have I got time to tell you what pesticides do, or not? Well,
0: please do, yeah.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, when you use a pesticide, you spray it on, and um, it it might be systemic, it might be surface, and um, it will. Uh, it's designed to kill aphids. That's why people panic. They think, "Oh my God, I've got aphids," and they think for some reason they're locusts. And they're they're (laughs) very species specific. They don't rampage through the whole garden, and they can easily be wiped off by the fingers because they've got feeding tubes. But they think they've got to use this insecticide, so they use it. And what they actually do is they kill every soft bodied creature in their garden, and that includes ladybird larvae, hoverfly, all the all the things that are on the plant. You know will will succumb, a lot of them will go. And the thing about aphids is they reproduce so quickly that they can produce 40 generations per year. And in the Living Jigsaw book, I write about Rene Rameur, a French mathematician, calculating if one aphid was allowed to breed, it could do a military formation four times deep right on the equator, which is quite something. I don't know whether it's right, but you get the message they have their babies inside them. Yeah. So they don't have to find a mate like the rest of us do. They have their babies inside them and they produce clones of themselves. So if that aphid has some resistance to um, pesticides, it passes that resistance straight down into its offspring. and All those offspring are the same. And Rothamsted Research Station proved that this is speeding up Um, evolution. So insects are becoming very, very resistant to pesticides and and the same pesticide. My daughter was talking about her dog fleas the other day because the stuff she puts on the dog's neck isn't working anymore. It's because they've developed resistance. Mm -hmm. And actually, you're far better not to kill across the board, not to use a garlic spray, not to use soft soap, because all the other creatures like the ladybirds, they only ha- produce one or two generations a year. So they take a lot longer to recover. And actually by spraying with an insecticide, you're not only building up that resistance, you're, you're actually um, um, giving them free rein because they, there are no predators around really to eat them. You've killed so many other things as well. And when I was at Wellsbourne, that's actually how we raised four aphids for our experiments, one blitz with a, a, surf, a superficial insecticide, which just killed everything, and then the aphids bounce back. So, you know, it's, mm. it, it, it's really doing a lot of damage. Using insecticides um, is doing a lot of ecological damage in gardens because when you get all those lower orders, they're over, underpinning everything else. Mm. So you get an aphid and perhaps six or seven things above them in the sort of food web round you know that above them in the food chain uh, will be eating those aphids so to pull that away uh, creates a lot of problems gardeners are still you know under the impression that they've got to treat aphids that they you know they have to spray for black spot even though they could go by a perfectly healthy rose that wouldn't suffer from it and my cause in life is to is to try to change people's attitudes. Brilliant.
0: Okay, thank you for that.
2: Now, can
0: I ask you a question about ladybirds? Obviously,
2: yeah.
0: it, you've clearly observed quite a few of them in your time. How, do you know sort of what uh, are the ones with different numbers of spots feeding on different creatures or do they all like to predate on whatever they can?
2: Um, well, the strange thing is that they live in different places, and they hibernate in different places. And one of the ladybirds that was really common when I was a child, which was always on rose bushes, was the two-spot, and mm-hmm. that's not very common at all now. And seven-spots are still living fairly well, um, but there are meadow species as well, there are mildew-eaters, and they all have different, they all inhabit different um, uh, niches, really. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that- that's why diversity is so important to provide these different plants because you'll get um, seven spots prefer to roost on the ground and you'll have to find them in leaf litter or tucked in among ferns um, so it, it's quite sort of important so every every creature and it's the same with bees bees have different length tongues yep. and they emerge at different times bumblebees so it's very important to have uh, you know different types of flowers a lot of bumblebees have short tongues the earlier flowering ones. So they need things like crocuses and herbivores. And they need them. You know, they really do need them uh, because they come out of hibernation. They've got no food stores down there at all. They have to find a new nest. They have to start to uh, produce, um, uh, to make their colonies. And, you know, they don't really need nectar and pollen. So, but later on in the year, you get longer tongue bumblebees who can access things like snapdragons and the peters so having this mix of flowers throughout the year lots of different shapes it's because they've all got their different preferences Mm. i mean they're just like us in a way i mean if you said to somebody um oh let's go for a meal they might say to you i'd love to go for a hot indian well i couldn't do anything worse than a hot indian Mm. That sounds awful, doesn't it? I don't mean, you know, no, no. I, I hate spicy food. Yeah, yeah st- we're all stick different. to a mild one.
0: That's for your far yeah, sofa. Yeah. That's <laughs> my, I'm with you on that one, Val. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Have used the word meal
0: there, uh, <laughs> hot Indian meal. Yeah. Not a hot Indian, yeah. But, uh, do you think the ask you a slightly controversial question here? The monoculture that's sort of predating the country with, with, with regards to agriculture and modern farm, farming techniques. Do you think that's another reason why we're getting such a big decline in insects and the well, associated uh, wildlife?
2: I do. I, I think it made a terrific difference. Um, particularly in the 70s when farmers seemed to sort of suddenly gear up and start to use um, the fields started to get larger the machinery started to get heavier which compacted the soil Um, they're putting a lot of um, fertilizer on it all sort of upset the balance but actually there are huge changes in farming because um, the farmers can't sustain it Mm. Um, one of the problems was in the 70s they started using um land which wasn't really suitable uh for crops they started to try to pump up the fertilizer um because where i live in the Cotswolds, in the 70s this land here was all grazed by sheep or other animals and suddenly farmers started to to, to drive towards growing crops ploughed and they brought up the stone and they put more fertilizer on it well the truth is they haven't been able to sustain it because the fertilizer is too expensive. Mm-hmm. And uh, the yields you know, are poor, and they're mm-hmm. getting poorer because of climate change. So we've got um, farmers around here who are really experimenting with sustainable farming and, and different methods, because I'm not far across the fields from Adam Henson, who's on Countryfile, mm-hmm. and uh, he's even colder than we are actually up there. But, um, you know, so farming is changing because there are whole breeds that a lot of younger farmers are really going back to a a different um, way of life. Um, I've got a book on my bookshelf, which I can never remember the name of. And um, it's called English Pastoral, and it's by James Rebanks. And I recommend two books for people to read if they are readers. One is um, Elizabeth, uh, Isabel Tree's book on the Nepa state which will make you feel so much better about wildlife but this is called english pastoral and it's written by james rebanks who inherits a farm in the latest that his grandfather has had and um, his grandfather has resisted modern pressures uh, to borrow lots of money and to turn his farm into a, uh, something other than a hill farm with sheep and to cut a long story short um, James uh, Rebanks' land is rich uh, in flora and wildlife and almost any other farm in his area and when they analyse the soil it's the best soil that these people have ever seen mm-hmm. <laughs> so you know I, I, I do recommend that book it's a really lovely lovely read uh, I, I, I think uh, agriculture is having to change because yes. it's, just not, it's just not working anymore
1: Especially as you say, with, with uh, global warming and climate change having that uh, effect. Um, Val, um, wildlife has obviously been an overriding feature in, in your gardens, um, but what's your sort of take on last year's Chelsea Flower Show, where wildflowers, and I use that term very loosely as a lot of people were just pointing when I was there to say, so what, what are those weeds uh, having on, on, on their show gardens? What do you think that sort of message is sending out to, to, to the gardener of today?
2: Well, I was very disappointed. I I had to go up and do a talk, um, and it was up in Derbyshire Way, Mm -hmm. and um, my sat-nav wasn't behaving. And, of course, being Val, I had factored in a couple of nursery visits on the way. So I found myself at Avondale Nursery in Coventry buying plants, and then I found myself at another nursery. And then I tried to get um, up towards Coles Hill and cut across – my nav kept sending me along the A45 and then I went up and I went between Coventry and Birmingham and I got stuck in traffic which gave me loads of time to observe the gardens, the front gardens, many of which had cars in them. But the ones that didn't have cars had been just left as wild patches mm-hmm. and they were full of weeds. Now, I've got... There's nothing wrong with weeds. I mean, weeds are quite an important part of the wildlife and the natural cycle. When I was at Cook Norton, for instance, I always used to get aphids on the back of the shepherd's purse. And because I didn't know what I was doing when I first went there, I used to pull them up. And then I realized that they were in a really important food, food source um, for birds and things like that, so I started leaving them. You know, weeds are only wildflowers. But I don't—I didn't get the impression anybody was gardening those patches. I still think gardening is actually about growing plants in a sympathetic way. I mean, I grow... Well, we grow most of our own vegetables here. We grow fruit. We try to grow strawberries. You know, we grow a lot of plants here. And, you know, we have an allotment. We have dahlias on the allotment. Now, to that, that to me is gardening, and yeah. I sometimes think it's difficult because the two show gardens, I am ashamed to say, I don't look at very many of them because I'm not a garden designer. I'm a plants person, and I'm seduced yes. into the floral marquee. Indeed. There are certain designers like Charlotte Edwards and Hugo. Do I mean Charlotte Edwards? And Hugo Barg, is that yep. the right That's name? A, yeah, I think so. Yep. Yeah, Hugo yep. Yeah, I, I always look at theirs because they use mm. plants wonderfully well. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, but I don't like a lot of the the style element that goes into Chelsea Gardens mm. where they try to recreate Hidcutt or particularly, you know, they did Cedric Morris this time. They did, yes. And it was nothing like Cedric Morris's garden, I can tell you that. I I did like the plants in it, but so I, you know, I, I think there's a place for weeds on the outer edges. But I think to convince gardeners that gardening is just letting everything, you know, go wild is not gardening. No, to me anyway. No, I
1: don't totally agree with you, what you're saying there. Um, reading your book, Val, you, you do like to naturalise your your bulbs in in grass um, and your lawns. How easy is this to achieve? And do and I suspect you probably like the idea of no mow May. I
2: probably like the idea of what? Sorry, no mo' may the the. Uh... I like the idea of no mo' full stop. <laughs> okay. We have there
0: we I go. Have, That's an even better one. When when can you launch verges. that for us now? Yeah. That that'd be brilliant. What no.
2: Is good? Of no mo' may. I'm a member of Plant Life. I think it's ridiculous. Uh, I'm sorry. Um, we have verges to our cottage. Yeah. Grass wedges, and yeah. they're cut once a year in September. And they have been a terrific source <laughs> I don't know what to call it really. We live in a village where the parish council spend most of their budget on mowing. Everything is mowed and clipped. Mm-hmm. Now, when I was a young teacher, I did a study on mini beasts in a school in Birmingham and we went out there and it had trees and the groundsmen came every week. And mowed and tidier and we went out there and we did this thing of shaking the trees and looking in the grass and three days and guess what we found didly squat mm-hmm. so i took them down to the local churchyard which was um not mown and it had it was beautiful there were it was may and there were a lot of cow parsley was out there were remnants of things like violets and uh, primroses and we 're going we 're going back into the nineteen eighties and um it was absolutely full of life mm-hmm. so i don 't mow all my grass we the We have areas of long grass here we have two bulb lawns, and um round the fruit trees um you can see the pictures in the book there is uh, uh, that is left. It's been mown, but it will be left now. Um, snowdrops will come up, crocuses will come up, um, daffodils will come up, crithalaria purpurea will come up, yellow rattle will come up, followed by um, um, all sorts of other things. There'll be camasias in there. Um, when people say that organic gardening doesn't work, and they, you know, try to present these very pristine Clipped, immaculate gardens. You only have to look at the the king's high grove garden and the way he's done those meadows Mm -hmm. to know that that is really the way forward. I would love people to leave some of their grass. I do mow and I do edge uh, and it does look neat because the grass looks as though it should be there, the longer grass, and people are drawn to it. Like a magnet in summer, because they watch the bees on it. Things have come back, like hot hop trefoil. It's very, very colourful. Uh, and you know, it, when we cut it, I don't cut it. The best beloved cuts it. Um, we cut it by hand because we don't want to do uh, strim any frogs or anything like that. I don't own a strimmer for instance. I wouldn't have a streamer, uh you know, in my shed because they do so much damage to hedgehogs and things. So you know, I would prefer people, you know, to adopt the longer grass. And then the other bulb lawn is left long. And we've had a bee orchid come back there, um, all of its own volition. Mm. So, you know, we, I'm not a great lover of everything being mown and striped lawns. I, don't, I think it uses fossil fuel, and I actually find longer grass interesting. And when the National Trust stopped mowing all their um, lawns uh, way back, probably about 20 years ago now, um, because of expense, it took a lot of man hours, and uh, it cost a lot of money to actually get it done. So they decided they would cut one path through these areas of long grass. Two things happened. The public loved it, absolutely loved it, and the butterfly numbers went right up. Matthew Oates was the butterfly man then, and I interviewed him, and the brown butterflies, the marbled whites and the ringlets and the gatekeepers and the meadow browns, they suddenly went right up in number. So. I, you know, I'm not. I think I've said enough about. I've offended enough people on lawns. <laughs> I think. Well, I I've think everyone that. has their I mean, own choice it, yeah.
0: choice to make, don't they? At the yeah. end of the day, and yeah. it's some people like going and mowing the lawn every Saturday. It's part of a routine. Yes. Yeah. Then, I don't I'll,
2: think. That, I, don't, I don't think it is about choice, though. I think it's about if all, you know, our planet surviving. Mm-hmm. If if everybody takes that attitude and says i want to have a clothes mowed lawn and i want this and i don't want avids and all this you know our wildlife is going to go down and down and down and that's all the things like the bees i mean bee numbers um when i started reading about um bumblebees for instance i i, I got a book which was written by a couple of guys and i'm, I'm on my feet again because i'm looking for it mm-hmm. on my shelf and it's called um you're all, can't find it. Anyway, it's it's by a chap called Free and someone else. It was written in the nineteen fifties. Now he does they they didn't even bother to record the numbers of a lot of bees be prolific. Right. be he writes about it as being everywhere. Mm. And now it's so rare. You find it near Newport You find it in certain parts of the country. And it's called the Shrill Carderby because it makes a shrill noise. But I'm deaf, so I can't hear anything like that. Mm. Um, You know, it's a really – we have got to change the way that we behave, all of us, in the world and in our gardens. It isn't saying, I like a nicely neatly mowed lawn. It's actually saying, you know, we have to look after all these wild creatures because we don't own this world we're part of this world and I've got grandchildren and when I was 16 I moved up to Leamington Spa and I was a cadet nurse and I used to go out on my bike and I was bowled over by the wild flowers and the bees mm-hmm. and, and all the wildlife and I, I got told off when I was learning to drive because I, go- I was looking at the birds rather than the road. Well, my grandchildren will never know that abundance. No. And what will be left for their grandchildren? So let- let's be precise about this. It's not about whether you like a nice, neat lawn. It's whether you should perhaps leave some of that lawn for a few of God's creatures. No,
0: yeah, I, I totally agree. Sorry, what I was going to say earlier, Val, was that ultimately if you like a nice, neat patch of lawn make sure it's a patch rather than the entirety because you can combine sort of uh, uh, getting some wild flowers, getting some nice Mm. bulbs and what have you, growing around the edge and having a strip in the middle where you can put your deck chair and enjoy Mm. a nice bit of grass to walk on. Although, Mm. personally, I've walked on long grass and short grass and I don't think there's much difference. I think it's just a wonderful sensation Mm. getting outside and enjoying the sunshine and the wildlife, isn't it?
1: Yeah, Val. As we, we sort of come towards the end of the, the, the podcast, can I just ask you a few more questions? We've got your travel. You've travelled around, obviously, uh, in your in your life. Uh, you've come across many inspiring gardens on, over the years. Uh,
2: do you have any favourites you'd like to to share with us? Oh, that is so hard. I find this really difficult because I I, I, I often like gardens that other people don't like. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. I don't know. Um, I can't. I can't actually pluck a garden. I think the trouble is, I spend so much time in my own garden because i you know, I, it takes a long time to garden, mm-hmm. and you know, and I'm writing for a lot of the time, so I don't get out. And a lot of gardens, you know, I'm, I'm very disappointed in. Mm. Um, so it's really hard for me to choose a garden that I really, really love. I'm sure there are gardens I really love. I can't actually think of them. No, no that's um, fine.
1: No, um, obviously you're very busy with, with your garden and your gardening columns. Um, have you any sort of plans for uh, another book in the, in the in the near future?
2: Yeah, I'm. I'm just started another book actually. Okay. Um, I'm about a fifth of the way through it. Okay. It's quite a short book, and it's about resilient plants because um, mm-hmm. everybody's wrestling with climate change, mm-hmm. um, and and a, and a lot of books. Um, regarding climate change, it's all been about plants for dry and mm-hmm. drought. Mm-hmm. But we don't get, we do get droughts, but we also get deluges. It's hardly stopped raining here <laughs> yep. for weeks and weeks. We've had mm-hmm. the odd dry day, yep. and that's seeing off a lot of my plants. You know, they're not doing so well. So I'm, uh, I'm doing this book. On plants that will, that will survive drought and wet conditions. Excellent. Because there are certain plants, you look at a genus like order phloxes, for instance, and there are one or two of them that really stand out as being resilient. Monica Linden Bell, for instance, mm-hmm. pale pink one found in a chalk garden. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm doing this book, which is very planty, which is really mm-hmm. nice to do. And I think it's probably going to be out in 2005. I haven't done another book since the uh, Living Jigsaw because it was such a big project.
1: Yeah, yeah. We we'll, we'll look haven't... forward. I say we we'll look forward to to reading that Val in the in the, yeah twenty 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 five then or thereabouts. Yeah, yeah. hopefully. Yeah, yeah. 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 that would be good
0: because yeah. tough tough plants mm-hmm. are like like you've identified Val. What we all need because yeah, mm-hmm. so many times you get a dry patch and then it's just yeah
1: indeed. Well, looking out of the window today no. i mean <laughs> puddles the, the puddles. Windows, puddles
2: yeah they push them in a quandary because mm. water is a precious resource and i will not water my flower borders when the reservoirs are low you know my plants just have to tough it out mm-hmm. um because i i i don't think it's ethically right when you know the reservoirs are very low and um uh, to 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 use it on the garden really I mean I use the water but water when I can and yeah. if it's wet I, you know I fill up lots of watering cans you know and try yeah. to be as sustainable as possible yeah, because sure. I think gardening has to be sustainable we're living in a very different era to the one that I grew up in yeah. when there were I mean I used to um, find wildflowers you know in lots of parts of London they've all gone. Yeah. Yeah, different, different
1: times and uh, not for the it's good, a different unfortunately.
2: Different time, yes.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah Val, we, we, we do ask this question, or well, these are the next couple of questions, to all our guests. So, you've been shipwrecked on a desert island. Uh, which plant or tool would you relish on your castaway island?
2: Oh, my castaway <laughs> island. Well, I'd, I don't think it would do very well on a castaway island. And it's very, very difficult because I love so many plants. I really do. Mm. So to actually choose one, what would I choose? I don't know. I'd probably choose, oh, yeah, so difficult. I know which tool I'd choose. Okay. And it's a guilty tool Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because years and years and years ago, when I first started writing, a chap sent me what was called a cobra-headed weeder. Mm-hmm. And it had like a snake's head with a sort of diamond thing on the end and it was hooked. And it's fantastic for weeding. So when you're, you you know, see a dandelion, you get your cobra tool and you hook it out. And the reason I feel guilty about it was I said that I would promote it and he sent it to me in the post and I lost his details and I've never promoted it <laughs> because I couldn't promote it because I couldn't remember who he was. Yeah. So every time I get this... This cobra-headed tool out which I've had probably nearly 30 years, I think, for this poor chap sending it to me. A- so that, that is such a useful thing, and I get mm-hmm. such pleasure. Uh, I spend a lot of time you know, down on my knees, uh, you know, uh, sort of hand weeding and tiffling and things, because mm-hmm. I have so many plants, mm-hmm. you know, probably 200 different snowdrops to start with, uh, and loads of other plants. So it, it's quite meticulous, the weeding in the summer. Mm. You can't sort of run over a lot of it with a hoe or anything. So I think that would be my pl- uh, my tool of choice. Now, what would be my plant of choice? All well, that is so difficult, um, really difficult. I, uh, I absolutely love amsonias. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. Those um, um, eastern blue star plants that yep. flower in May and they have little clusters of slate blue flowers. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they take a long, long time, but I love them because they come through the soil. And I like I, I like the sort of bigger ones. Tabernay Montana is one I particularly like. And the 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 shoots come through the ground, and they're like very, very dark asparagus spears. Oh, nice. And they're one of these plants that come up really quickly. They you know mm-hmm. one minute they're coming through the ground, and the next minute they're two or three feet high. Um, they, they, so they sort of move and then they get these clusters of blue, slate blue flowers, which I find a really lovely colour in spring, mm. Maytime, with uh, totally tangerine, the geum. And mm. then um, it produces long seed pods. Okay. The stems stay dark and then you get the dark seed pods. And then in autumn, you get this wonderful butter yellow colour on them. So I think I probably tried to take that one. Yeah. That's, wow. I've never even heard of that. <laughs> I oh, that's, that's brilliant.
0: I'm going to have to look that one up. That's yeah. a great suggestion. Thank you for that. And obviously through your life in gardening, uh, have you picked up any amusing stories or any, have you got any funny tales for us that we can share with our listeners about oh, something gosh. that's happened?
2: Oh, I might have to think about that for a second. Absolutely fine. Let me see. I'm very, 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 very I, I love Anne-Marie Powell. And we went on a we went on a trip um, to the Loire Valley, mm-hmm. and um, she was quite surprised that I'm a bit of a, a Dumbo when it comes to losing things and doing things. Uh, right. I'm not the most organised person, but anyway, we were on this bus, and we'd had a, it was hot weather, and we'd had a really long day, and we were on the bus, and we were had been put up in rather basic um, uh, holiday in- Style hotels. But this particular night, we were going to stay in a French chateau yeah. with a man who grew loads of tomatoes and dahlias. And he had a, a company called, I think, Le Jardinier. Okay. I think that's correct. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're on the bus, and Anne Marie is going on about how she was so looking forward to this bath. And I am one of those people who jumps under a shower for two minutes because it's still long enough for a bath. But I really got quite enthusiastic about this lovely bath. Sure. And we had a day with all the rooms and everything there. Well, when we got there, um, it was about um, five o'clock, six o'clock in the evening. And the chap um, had set out all his uh, tomatoes and he was making um, green cocktails and healthy, healthy drinks. And we got there and we were, we were dying of thirst and we were really grubby. And this went on, and uh, he started passing these um, uh, green cocktails around. No alcohol, just you know, plants and tomatoes, um, which didn't go down well with Anne-Marie at all. But I'm teetotal, so I wasn't so bothered. And um, this, this went on for a long time. And while he was talking about healthy living, his wife was in the background drinking red wine. And that really annoyed Anne-Marie. <laughs> <laughs> By that time, getting a bit desperate, so um, at the end of this spill, it got to eight o'clock, and we thought, "Well, how on earth are we ever going to get ready for this lavish dinner we're meant to be having?" Well, at the end of it, he 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 said, "Oh, by the way, I've got a public announcement to make." And we thought, "Crikey, what's this?" And he said, um, "The boiler's broken. There's no hot water, and you can find an electric kettle over there." Oh! No. <laughs> oh.
1: <laughs> Illusion shattered. <laughs> I
2: have never seen anybody's face crumple as far. Oh did. No. So often we went without kettles. We yeah. still got a good feel at the end of it. Good It was quite funny. I think Fantastic. that was that was. Oh my God, moment.
1: Brilliant! Great, Brilliant. yeah, great, great story, Val. Um, finally, finally, uh, your books, including the, the Living Jigsaw, is still available. I managed to cut, track down a copy on uh, Amazon, and uh, Wilder Books have got it as well. But how do our digit listeners keep up with your your current uh, musings?
2: Well, you can you can read me on Hartley Botanic. I've got a blog, and I just won Digital Writer of the Year with it, Love which was good. Mm-hmm. I only put it in because I couldn't get the PDFs. Uh, for some practical stuff I've done in um, um, Garden Answers and actually Greg Lodes was um, the editor and I beat him in the competition and if he'd sent me the PDFs in town I never would have gone in for the digital (laughs) so well done anyway you can read me on there you can read me in Amateur Gardening Indeed. Um, you can read me quite often in the, in the telegraph, not as often because they're not that planty anymore. I've got some things coming up in the English garden on snowdrops and hellebores. Brilliant. Oh, um, I pop up all over the place. Yeah. I, I just try to keep busy. Yeah. I don't earn a great living but it's interesting. And do you have a, a website, Val? People could go to. Yeah, I've got a website, but I don't put very, i don't post anything on it apart from uh, my talks, my books, and pictures of the garden.
1: Perfect, Val. It's, it's been—it's a, a, a really good book. I thoroughly enjoyed reading it, and yeah, the mm. photography is, is pretty is something else. But uh, we really thank you for your, for your time on Diggit today. I uh, hope you've—you've you've enjoyed it. We've certainly enjoyed chatting—chatting uh, chatting with you. I
2: hope I, I hope I haven't talked too much. Definitely not at, not
0: at, at all, a talk. the all idea of, of our, <laughs> our chat, is it? <laughs> not it? You wasn't. can
2: understand why my grandmother used to take me in the garden, can not you? <laughs>
0: That's lovely. Brilliant. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Val. It's yeah. been wonderful.
1: No, thank you.
2: Thank you for asking me. Bye.
1: Today's show was brought to you by Buckingham Garden Centre and Nurseries. The show was hosted by Chris Day and Peter Brown. The show was produced by Peter Brown. And our thanks to Chilton Music Therapy for providing the music. Thanks for listening.
2: At Chiltern Music Therapy, we want everyone to know the difference that music can make in their lives, from parents and their premature babies in hospital to grandparents with dementia. We provide music therapy and community music services to people of all ages and needs across England. We work both digitally and in person in people's homes, care homes, schools, hospitals and hospices. Find out more at childrenmusictherapy.co.uk.